Well, good morning, New Breed. Hopefully, by now you are in your Bibles in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. So follow with me as I read this morning Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And I've tagged this sermon uh, A Response of Faith, part 1. A Response of Faith. So hear the word of the Lord. A prayer of the prophet. Habakkuk, according to Shijanoth, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. And in your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His br- brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from His hand. This is where His power is hidden. Plague goes before Him and pestilence follows in His steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kashan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea? When you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot, you took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. Heavenly Father, this morning as we consider this idea of of responding in faith in the midst of a world that is unjust, I pray that who you are and your majesty would just sweep over us, God that we would be in awe of all that you do, all that you have done, and all that you will do. To your great name be all praise and glory. Amen. Well, again, good morning, New Breed. Uh, It is good to be back with you. It is good to to open up God's Word uh, with you as we continue on and, and honestly begin to draw to a close our study through the book of Habakkuk, this series that we've entitled God's Justice in an Unjust World. God's Justice in an Unjust World. And I know there there, there have been some breaks in this series as some things outside of our control has, has happened. We started the series while we were meeting together. 
then we weren't able to meet together, and so we took a break for a week and jumped back in, and then took a break for a few weeks and, and then jumped back in. So I know that, that it's been uh, somewhat hit or miss in terms of when we've been talking about Habakkuk, but I do hope that it has been an encouragement to you. And, and I want to also encourage you that if you're struggling to remember some of those sermons and there are gaps in your memory, all of them uh, are online and I would encourage you to go back and, and listen because what I don't want to be lost in, in, in this somewhat uh, chaotic time is, is the, the magnitude and the majesty of the book of Habakkuk because it is, it is an incredible tool in helping us think through God's justice in the midst of a world that is just unjust. And so let me, let me briefly recap, and this will be very brief, not like last week, but let me recap where we have been in the book of Habakkuk. So the book of Habakkuk begins with Habakkuk seeing all of the injustice around him. And this is not necessarily injustice from outside nations, but he's looking in at Judah and he sees the injustice within Injustice is committed by the very people of God, and Habakkuk rightly hates what he sees. And he cries out to God to intervene, and and God says that he will intervene. He responds to Habakkuk, and God declares that what he is going to do is raise up the Chaldeans as judgment on Judah, and Judah will experience injustice collectively as a people. And this response from God is one that that confuses Habakkuk a little bit. And, And he asks God, how is this the right response? How is this the right thing to do? He asks God, why are you doing it this way? Again, not not in a condemning way, not in an accusatory way. Uh, I believe from a posture of humility, but he is genuinely confused about what God is doing and why God would act in this way. And God responds to Habakkuk, excuse me, but he does not directly answer him in terms of, of, of specifically revealing his hand. He doesn't specifically tell Habakkuk why he is doing things this way. But what we saw last week in the five woe oracles was that, that God answered him by revealing his heart. And, and he had basically told Habakkuk, it's okay if you don't understand what I am doing. But what but I want you to do, what you, what you must do is trust, trust my heart. And so God revealed his heart. And in essence... Those five woe oracles were a resounding declaration that God hates injustice. And though Habakkuk may not understand all that God is doing, Habakkuk can and should trust God's heart. This goes back to the statement God made in chapter 2 verse 4 where God says, but the righteous one will live by his faith. That, that verse somewhat sums up all of the appropriate response for God's people living under a just God in an unjust world. But the righteous one will live by his faith. So what we just read in the book of Habakkuk beginning in chapter, chapter 3 verse 1, we just read Habakkuk's response to God revealing his heart towards injustice. And and the response that we see from Habakkuk is one of faith. It is a response of faith. It is the only right response to all that he has seen and heard up uh, up to this point. And I would contend this morning that as we consider God's justice in an unjust world, even here and today, the core of our response, the heartbeat of our response, which will play itself out in different ways, but the core of that response has to be one of faith. 
You know, one of the things that's been a blessing uh, during this time is our ability to kind of do a Q&A, to, to have a question and answer time regarding uh, the sermon. And there was a question last week that I did not deal with, but I saw. And, and I want to mention it now because, because in light of everything that we had talked about when we concluded chapter 2, in my opinion, it was the right question to ask. And so what we will talk about in this sermon and what we will talk about in our final sermon next week uh, is in some ways an answer to that question. And the question that was posed in our Q&A time last week was this, how should we live in light of God's coming wrath on unjust nations, especially if like Habakkuk, it is our own? I'm going to read that question again. How should we live in light of God's coming wrath on unjust nations, especially if like Habakkuk, it is our own? And I want to commend you that that is the right question to ask in light of where we finished Habakkuk last week at the end of chapter 2. And so my answer to that question is a simple answer, but one that we will now flesh out over the next two weeks. My, my answer to that question of how should we live in light of God's coming wrath on unjust nations, especially if like Habakkuk, it is our own, our response must be a response of faith. A response of faith. And so again, what I want to do this week and in the week to come is flesh out for you what that looks like, what a response of faith looks like based off of Habakkuk's response here in chapter 3, the final chapter of the book of Habakkuk. And so one thing that you will notice this morning that is so fascinating is as, as we break down some of these elements of his faith revealed here in this text, you will see that, that they somewhat build off of one another. So you, you can't have step two unless you have, uh, or we'll say you can't have the second element unless you have the first element, and you can't have the third element unless you have the first and the second element. And so they, they build off of one another. So again, what we see in chapter three are elements of his faith in the midst of injustice, Present while believing in a just God who is sovereign over all. So here, I want to dive in. Here's the first element of his faith that we see. The first element of this response of faith seen from Habakkuk is trust in the word of God. Trust in the word of God. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It begins and it says, a, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. According to Shijanoth, Lord, I have read the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years and in your wrath. Remember mercy. And these two verses at the beginning of chapter 3 reveal to us Habakkuk's deep trust in the word of God. Because one of the first things he says there is, Lord, I have heard your report. And what he is referring to is specifically there is the word of God that has just been revealed to him regarding God's heart toward injustice. He's looking back on what, what we saw in chapter 2 and in light of that report and the word of God coming to him, he says, I, I have heard your report. He says he, he heard and he believes in what God has said. But, but I want you to notice this, this trusting in, in the word of God that's revealed here in Habakkuk, it goes beyond a simple head knowledge of the word. Because look at what he says next. He says, I have heard the, the report about you, Lord, 
And he says, and I stand in awe of your deeds. You see, this element of faith that Habakkuk displays, this trust in the word of of God, it goes beyond simply knowing the word of God. It, It goes beyond simply hearing the word of God. It goes beyond simply reading the word of God. This trust, this this trust that is that is evidence of faith, a true trust in the word of God, it not only penetrates our minds, but it also penetrates our hearts and changes our affections toward God. You see, when Habakkuk received this testimony of of a just God who hates injustice and said that he will act, it cultivated in Habakkuk a deeper love and a deeper affection for God. Based off of his statement, he was more in awe of God after chapter 2 than he was before chapter 2. It's not to say he wasn't in awe of God before that, but he was even more in awe of God as he received this revelation, this word from God about who God is. And church, that is what the word of God does. At least that's what the word of God should do. It reveals to us more and more and more of who God is. And that should not only begin to change our minds, but it should begin to change our affections. It should help us and make us love God all the more. And and in a practical sense, trying to give you some, some practical application, this speaks to how we should approach our time in the Word as believers. Because so often, if we're honest, and, and I've, been, I've been here myself, we, we approach the Word of God with ourselves in mind. We, we want guidance on a particular issue. We want to feel near to God. We, we want to know uh, what we should do and how we should live. And, and most often, we want God to answer a specific question that we are asking. And hear me, and, and please do, none of those longings are wrong. It's not wrong to to want to hear from God and feel near to God and and be guided by the word of God. It's not wrong to want, want God to answer questions that we might bring to the text. But those things should never be our primary motive in approaching the word of God. In other words, let me say it like this. The Bible is not about you. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, which I would highly recommend to all of you if you have never read it, he writes this, there is nothing more irreligious than a self-absorbed religion. There is nothing more irreligious than a self-absorbed religion. In other words, the Bible is not about you. It's not primarily about giving you guidance. It's not primarily about answering your questions. It's not primarily about helping you feel near to God. Again, it does those things, and those are good things, but that is not the primary function of the Bible. The primary purpose of the Bible is for us to know God and savor God and delight in God. But the amazing thing is, is that God is so good that when we do this, when we approach the Bible with this posture of, I just want to know God. I want to love God. I want to know more of who he is and what he has done and what he has promised. I want to savor the beauty and the majesty of this God who has made himself known to me. When we approach the Bible like that, God is so good that often we will know what to do. 
And we will know how to live and we will feel near to God and we will have answers to some, some of, of the questions that we ask of God. To again quote J.I. Packer in Knowing God, he said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Oh, isn't that a powerful statement that once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to simply know God, that that's why God left you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to delight in him and savor him and see him as the greatest treasure of your life, that when you do that and seek that well, so often most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. It doesn't necessarily mean your problems go away. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have all of the answers, but it means that, that you understand how to live in, in, in light of your problems under the knowledge and the delight of who God is. Our aim in approaching the word of God has to first and foremost be knowing God and savoring him for who he is. And you, what's so interesting is, is that you go back to our text, it's, it's this faith in God that's manifested in a trust in his word. That is what is enduring Habakkuk through what he knows will be a trying season for Judah. So, so, so think about this. God has just told Judah, God, well, God has just told Habakkuk that Judah would be, would be taken over by the Chaldeans, that they would be inflicted with even greater injustice, that, injustice than they had committed. And Habakkuk knows that he's a part of Judah, and Habakkuk knows that he's not exempt from feeling that. But it is his faith in God manifested in a trust in his word that is enduring Habakkuk through what he knows will be a trying season for Judah. He says, revive your works in these years. Make it known in these years. And in your wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk is saying that he longs to see God bring justice, but he understands the weight of that longing, so he pleads for mercy in the midst of it. David Firth, the commentator, notes in his commentary on Habakkuk, he says, although Habakkuk longs to see Yahweh active once again, he knows from his experience, which would be his trust in the word, he, he knows that this excludes Neither pain for those who are faithful to him, nor judgment for those who are not. So in the agitation or, or the wrath that comes from the revival of Yahweh's work, Habakkuk knows that mercy is needed. And what's, what's amazing to me is that this, this statement by Habakkuk for, for, God to, for, for God to remember mercy, it's sandwiched between what we just saw of God's stirring, God stirring up awe in Habakkuk and what we will see in a moment of his reflection on all that God has done. And so it is the testimony of God revealed through God's word where Habakkuk rests in the most uncertain times. It is the testimony of God revealed through God's word where Habakkuk rests in the most uncertain of times. Simple question for reflection. Where do you rest in the most uncertain of times? But, but I want you to notice this, and this is fascinating to me. Not only is Habakkuk's faith revealed through trusting in the word of God in 
not only do we see that by what he says, so we, we don't just see his, his trust in the word of God, this evidence of faith in what he says in these verses. We also see it revealed in how he is saying all of this, in how he is saying all of this. Now, you, you may have noticed this with how chapter 3 begins. It began by saying, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shijanoth. Now, now, how this chapter begins should remind you of something. Where else have you seen chapters of Scripture start with a prayer uh, of, of a person or, or the prophet uh, according to Shijanoth? Well, how this chapter begins should remind you of the Psalms. Similarly, through, throughout this chapter, you'll see the word Selah, which is also common throughout the Psalms. And what is interesting about chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk is that this chapter should be read and interpreted like a psalm. One commentator notes this about the significance of that. He says, Habakkuk's prayer, again, chapter 3, he says, frequently alludes to various psalms and is either composed in archaic poetry or drawn in part from the existing poems reflecting such psalms, suggesting that Habakkuk's prayer, listen to this, is shaped by reflection on the Psalter, which is the Psalms. And so he's saying that, that even as Habakkuk is responding to God, even as, as he is writing this in chapter 3, Habakkuk is drawing inspiration from the Psalms. He's drawing inspiration from other prophetic literature. He, he, he knows the Word of God, and the Word of God flows out of him even in his response to God. And this is so important. Habakkuk allows Scripture to shape how he responds to God. Habakkuk relies on Scripture as his source of truth. And so that doesn't just affect what he says. It also affects how he says it. Even as he speaks back to God, he is reflecting that Scripture is the source of his truth. That to me just paints a powerful picture of a man of faith who trusts in the Word of God. He allows it into his mind and then it begins to shape his heart and his affection towards God and his love and devotion to him. And then as he responds to God, scripture flows back out of him. What a faithful picture of a deep trust in the word of God. And again, this is the the foundation of his response of living in an unjust world, believing that there is a just God. He trusts first in the word of God. So the first element of Habakkuk's faith is, again, he trusts in the Word of God. And this then leads to the second element. The second element of Habakkuk's faith that we see here in this text text is not only a trust in the Word of God, but a trust that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a trust that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look again at verses 3 through 7. It says, God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from His hand. This is where His power, His hidden plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. 
The age-old mountains break apart and the ancient hill sinks down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kishon in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. And this is, this is such an intricate and complex passage of Scripture. And, and I'll just tell you, I delighted in studying it. And I probably spent the bulk of my time studying these verses and have so much in my head that I wish I could communicate to you. But if I communicated all of that to you, you would probably, uh, you would probably have to go to bed tonight uh, before we finish, right? There's just so much here. And so I tried to, to simplify it down to help you see this picture that Habakkuk trusts that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and again, there's so much going on. So let me unpack it a little bit for you you. What we see here in this account from Habakkuk is what we would call a theophany. A theophany. That's spelled T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. A theophany. And a theophany is when God appears to his people. And there are several theophanies recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not uncommon to see theophanies. But what is interesting to note is that in the Old Testament, they all show God as moving through the land from south to north. They always show God as moving from the land, moving through the land from south to north. And what's interesting is as Habakkuk speaks and reveals this theophany, he details the same progression and the same movement of God. So, so, so track with me. He starts by saying, God comes from Teman. And that word, Teman, literally means, in this context, the south. So it says that God comes from the south. Then it says, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And, and that is a very significant place in the Old Testament because it is, it is close to, to, to Mount Sinai. If, I'm, if I recall correctly, it's just northeast of Mount Sinai. And it was the first stopping place for Israel after they left Sinai. It was the first place they went after Mount Sinai, and it's where they stopped. And so, so Habakkuk, as he says this, he is reflecting on how God has previously moved among his people in power. And he is following what he knows of God from other theophanies in the Old Testament, that when God moves, he moves in a specific way. And he has shown himself to do that over and over. And what is interesting to note, and, and bear with me, I'm going somewhere with all this, is that typically theophanies describe what God has already done and his movement that occurred in past generations. So most of the time when scripture in the Old Testament is reflecting on these theophanies, they're looking back at something that God has already done. They're tracking his movement. They're tracking his work among his people. They're tracking his power displayed and it's typically in past tense. But where it gets interesting is when you look at the original language of Habakkuk's writing here, he writes in the imperfect tense, meaning as one commentator notes, this theophany is either is already occurring or is imminent as Habakkuk speaks. So, so what does this all mean? Well, here it is. So what this means is that Habakkuk is writing about God moving through Judah, looking back at the God who has already moved and believing that this same movement will occur because God has said that he would move and believing that it is imminent, it has to happen. And Habakkuk can track the movement of God because he believes that God is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. He even says there at the end of verse 6 that his pathways are ancient, that he looks back at how God has previously moved among his people, that God has showed up in power and he has brought judgment and deliverance and he is believing that the same God who was the same yesterday, who will be the same today and will be the same forever, is going to move in the same way because God doesn't change. And again, this builds off of the fact that he believes what God has already said, both written and spoken. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 14, God said, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Basically, God's glory will be known in this world. And Habakkuk believes this to be true, which is why he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. God said in chapter 2, verse 16, that the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. In other words, God is saying that no one can escape the wrath that is to come. And Habakkuk believes this, which is why he says, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 3, his brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. And so he is saying that when the Lord moves in judgment, it will tremble the earth and that nothing can stand in his way. And all of this belief is predicated on the God who is the same yesterday, today, and will be forever. So for Habakkuk, he looks back on the God who already came to his people in power before. And he believes that God is coming again now in his power because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when God speaks, there can be no doubt. And church, I just want to encourage you that this must be our response as well. In the midst of injustice, in the midst of a world that is sick and dying from this plague of sin, we place our trust in the God who is the same yesterday, today, and will be forever. We place our faith in a God who has promised and shown himself time and time again to be faithful. And if he has been faithful then, he will be faithful now and he will be for all of eternity because that is who God is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is the God we trust. If God has shown his heart toward injustice in the past, then we believe that his heart still stands today. God still hates the injustices of this world. And if God has said that he will judge, then we believe that this is true. But church, here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in when we think God has changed. The problem comes when we think God won't do what he has said he will do. And that is why, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm being transparent with you, that's why we see so many Christians running around thinking it is their responsibility to solve all the world's injustices and be the judge of those who commit those injustices. And listen, I am not saying that we should not be active in calling out injustices. The Bible calls us to that. We call out injustices when we see them. We are called to correct oppression when possible. But there are those who are acting as if, it, that, if that if they don't do it, nothing will happen. And the problem is that they believe that God has changed because this God who has said vengeance is mine no longer believes that. 
I got to slow down. We'll talk about more about that next week. So I'm going I'm to pull the reins in a little bit here and just say this. It is good news to us, brothers and sisters, that God never changes. We call this the immutability of God, that God cannot change. And I just, I just want to tell you that that is not just some theological truth that we talk about. We talk about the immutability of God, the, the, the fact that God never changes. It's not this lofty idea that exists up here in the heavens that has no implication for us here and now. It is an aspect of God's character where we anchor our lives. The fact that God never changes. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, a, a changeable God would be a terror to the righteous. They would have no sure anchorage. And amid a, ch uh, and a, amid a changing world, they would be driven to and fro in perpetual fear of shipwreck. But our heart leaps for joy as we bow before one who has never broken his word or changed his purpose. That is where we anchor our soul, that God will not change. And church, some of us need to believe that even here and now in our practical lives, because some of us are, are, are believing right now that this God who has said that he loves us and that he is for us, this Jesus who has said that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters in the book of Hebrews, some of us are running around acting like God is embarrassed with us and he is ashamed of us, his children. But that cannot be true because God has said that he was not like that in the past. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his truth never changes. We are fickle. We change so easily and I praise God that we can anchor our lives in a God who does not change. God is not fickle. He is not weak. He is not easily persuaded by things of this world. Our God doesn't change. And that is a good thing because if a perfect God could change, he would have to cease to be perfect. And if an imperfect God could change, then he was never God in the first place. But our God is perfectly unchangeable from beginning to end, and he will be for all of eternity. And for Habakkuk, this truth is where he rests in the midst of an unjust world, but believing in a just God. And it, it began with trusting the word of God. As, and as he trusted in the word of God, he began to see who God is, that he is, he is a God who has testified that he is never changing. And he has given evidence of the fact that he never changes and he will continue to never change for all of eternity. But, but I don't want you to miss this, this trust in the word of God, which reveals that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, was not only his confidence looking back, it was not only his confidence in the present, it was also his confidence looking forward. This leads to the third element of Habakkuk's response of faith that we see here in these first 15 verses of chapter 3. And the third element of, of this this faith, the, the, this response of faith to God in the midst of an unjust time. It was a trust that God is coming. It is a trust that God is coming. Look again at verses 8 through 15, and I want to read that section one more time. It says, are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or, or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? 
You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck, Selah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast waters. And in these verses, Habakkuk, in poetic language, written as a psalm, reveals that he believes God is coming. And with this coming, he testifies that there will be two outcomes for people. One of two outcomes for people. See, first, he, he reveals to us in this coming, this belief in this coming God, that, that for those who are unrighteous, for those who continue in their unjust ways, for those who seek their own glory and worship the created thing rather than the creator, there will be nothing but destruction. Nothing but destruction. He says in verse 12, you, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. Habakkuk is believing that when God comes to Judah, that one of the things that he will bring for some of the people is destruction. He will march across the earth with indignation. He will trample down the nations in wrath. And church, I want to just pause here for a minute because we cannot neglect this reality. I know that it is not an easy truth, and it is one that, that often in our day and age we don't talk about, and I think the reason for that is because often in our day and age, and even it presented in the church, is this God of creation who is presented somehow as this passive, weak, inactive God who will just allow sin to slide by because He's so loving. And I would argue that that's a misunderstanding of God's love and it's a misunderstanding of God's very nature and care. It's a misunderstanding of his holiness. But I, I just want to remind you and tell you as hard as that message is that God will not overlook sin. He cannot do it. This is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does not overlook sin. He cannot overlook sin because he is holy, holy, holy. As we read even earlier from Revelation, he is a God who, who is perfect in his judgment. He is perfect in his love. He is perfect in his wrath and his hatred of sin. He is totally perfect and a perfect God cannot tolerate to be in the presence of sin for all of eternity. And a holy God must judge the wicked. Again, our God is holy and righteous and he must judge sin. And what Habakkuk is telling us is that the coming of the Lord, he will do it. He will do it. But, but the beautiful thing about this passage is that this is not the only outcome. 
I said that, that people will experience one of two outcomes. And for those who are, who are unjust and, and for those who, who are wicked and who seek their own glory and worship the created thing rather than the creator, there will be nothing but destruction. But, but the other thing that the Lord brings when he comes is found there in verse 13. Where Habakkuk says, you come out to save your people. To save your anointed. You see, the beautiful truth is that when God comes, what Habakkuk was expecting when God showed up and moved in power through Judah is that there will be both judgment and deliverance. There will be both judgment and deliverance. And church, I don't know if you know this, but we believe that God is coming again as well. And when he comes... The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever will also come again with both judgment and deliverance. See, for the believer, we need not fear the coming of the Lord because it is for us our vindication. It is for us our deliverance. It is to us our hope. But the question we have to answer, the question that matters, the question that is significant in light of that truth is this. Do we believe that God is actually coming back? Do we believe he is coming again? And and a follow-up question, which I would argue is equally as significant, if not more so, is do we live as if that's true? Do we as believers live as if God is coming again, as as if he could show up this afternoon? We're not guaranteed to lay our heads on our pillows again. Some of you might already have your heads on your pillows right now, and I'd encourage you to get up, right? But we're not guaranteed that we will see tomorrow. God could come. I, I long for God to come, but the question is, are we living as if we believe this to be true? Do we live our day-to-day lives with an expectation that God could at any moment split the sky and when he comes, it will mean judgment for those who have rebelled against him and it will mean deliverance for those who are in Christ. And if you are, if you are watching this and you are not a believer and you've never placed your, your faith in Jesus, I just want to say to you that, that God is coming again. And when he comes, it will either be judgment for those who have rebelled against him or it will be salvation for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and what he has done on the cross by coming and paying the penalty for our sins and taking that judgment on himself so that we could inherit Christ's righteousness. And Jesus was crucified and he died. He was raised from the dead. And as we come believing that he has died in our place, believing that he was our sacrifice we, and repenting of our sins by, by trusting in God, we can find life in eternal and eternal and know that when God comes again, it will be for us our deliverance. And I would invite you to trust in Jesus, to believe that truth that God has saved you through Christ's work on the cross. But for Habakkuk, his faith demanded a trust that God was coming. And as he looked at God's word and saw a God who came to his people before, he knew that God would come again to judge because he said he would, and God does not change. He looked back and saw a faithful God who acted on behalf of the righteous and would act again on behalf of the righteous during this time of injustice. But I want to end this morning by drawing your attention to the last verse of our text. In verse chapter 15. 
where Habakkuk, it seems, and just kind of throws this in there, but it's very significant. He says, you tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. You know, many commentators, and after studying it and researching it, myself included now, believe that this is actually a reference to the Exodus. Specifically, to when God showed up and split the sea to deliver his people. And through that same action, with that same sea, he closed it as judgment and death on the Egyptians. And Habakkuk looks back in that statement at the Exodus. He looks back on this God who showed up for his people. And in that showing up, he judged and delivered in the midst of injustice. And basically, as Habakkuk writes verse 15, he's, he's saying, surely, surely God will do it again. Surely he will come. Surely he will bring both judgment and deliverance because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he had faith. And church, I want to tell you this morning that we have something even more sure to look back on. Because there was a time when God showed up for his people, but he showed up as a man. And when he came, judgment and deliverance were once again present. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because on the cross, God poured out his wrath and his anger and his judgment and his hatred of sin on his own son so that those who would trust in Christ could have salvation, that those who could trust in Christ could have deliverance. And Jesus bore our sin and we received his righteousness. So we saw in the coming of Christ, God coming once again with judgment and deliverance. But church, as we consider the cross while living in a broken world that is filled with injustice, we should have faith. We should have faith and trust in the word of God, the words that he has communicated to us about who he is. And it's in those words that we see and we believe that God never changes, that he is the immutable God. He is the same yesterday, today, and he will be forever. And we anchor our lives to that truth. And we believe that this God who never changes is coming back. And when he does, there will be both judgment and deliverance. And so in one sense, I want to leave you with this, and we will come back to this next week. In light of all of this, we wait. We wait on the Lord, believing that he will come and judge the wicked, and he will deliver his anointed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this testimony of faith here in the book of Habakkuk. We thank you, God, first and foremost, that you have spoken, you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that in that revelation, you have shown yourself to be a God who is steadfast through the ages. That you are a God who never changes, and you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And while we believe that, God, we have seen evidence of you coming 
and working on behalf of your people. We have seen evidence of you coming and judging the wicked and the unjust, God. And so we place our hope in that. That God, when you say you will come, you will come. And you have told us that you are coming back. That there will come a day when the sky splits and the trumpet sounds and our king will return. And for us who have placed our faith in Jesus, it will be our final deliverance. But for those who have not, Lord, it will be their destruction and judgment. And I pray, God, that that would motivate us to go and tell a lost and dying and an unjust world about how amazing you are and what you have done to provide a way for us to be made right with you. So give us grace to be bold in our proclamation to believe, God, that you are still saving people today, to believe that the the blood that was shed on the cross still saves. So allow us boldness to proclaim your excellencies to a world that so desperately needs to hear. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.